All right, Genesis chapter 3. Let's read the first eight verses together. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, May we eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden? I'm sorry. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God has God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. I want to read one other verse to you. Turn over to, hold your place there in Genesis, and let's turn over to First John. So we're going to go to the very front of your Bible, almost to the very back of your Bible. 1 John chapter 2. Let's read uh, beginning in verse 15. We're going to read 15, 16, and 17. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. I want you to look at verse 16. For all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now go back to Genesis. I want to just point out, and then we're going to talk about grace today. We're going to talk about grace for the fallen. We're going to talk about grace for our failures. We're going to talk about grace for our future. I want you to see that here in the Genesis account of creation, specifically in verse 6 of Genesis 2, or Genesis 3, it says, So when the woman saw, she saw the tree was good for food. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. She saw that it was a tree desirable to make one wise. Right there you have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It looks like it would taste good. It would be good for food. The lust of the flesh. It was beautiful to behold, the lust of the eyes. And desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. John, in his letter, says that all that is in the world, and he lists these things, these three things. And I think, if, I think it's fair to say that any temptation that comes to us is going to fall into one of these three categories. And my point in us reading these first eight verses in Genesis 3 and these verses in 1 John, my point is that you understand Though you are redeemed, you are still susceptible to temptation. I'm sure you already knew that, right? I mean, temptation is something that 
is present with us all the time. That's because we're in the world, and, and this is what is in the world. In the world, this world system. Now, we were once of the world, but now we have been redeemed in Christ by grace through faith. So if you are saved, if you are born again, you are no longer of the world, the Bible teaches us, though you are in the world. But being in this world, we are in a world in which the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is all around us, tempting us, distracting us, trying to get us to reach for that which we should not be reaching for, or to seek for that which is so far less than what God has for us. So we see from the beginning, even in the garden, man was tempted with the same things of the world. And so it continues today, but here is the good news. There is grace, both in our victory and in our fall. It's easy to find grace in our victory, right? But can we find grace in our fallenness? Can we find grace in our failure, We all know our past, but can we see grace for our future in spite of our past? So there is grace for the fallen. God did not cause Adam and Eve to fall. But God absolutely allowed Adam and Eve to fall. And God absolutely knew that they would fall before they ever fell. In fact, God knew before he created them that they would fall. Remember, it's like I always say, the cross is not plan B. There's no plan B. There is only God's eternal purpose. God does not fail in anything that he does. And so the fall, though we can say it was a failure, (laughs) it wasn't a failure on God's part. It was part of what God had ordained. Why did God allow Adam and Eve to fall? He did this in order to bring about our most glorious redemption in Christ. Now we're going to see that Before the fall, the gospel was. The gospel didn't come about after the fall. God didn't call an emergency council of the Trinity and say, now guys, what are we going to do? Man has messed our plan up. What, What can we possibly do to fix this now? That's not how it happened at all. Jesus is called the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. Before the foundation of the cosmos. Why why is he called that? Because God had and has an eternal plan. So here's the fact. We are born fallen. But God redeems. He redeems us though we are fallen. God does not save us once we have picked ourselves up. Are you with me? God's not up in heaven waiting for you to pick yourself up to meet him part way. Well, if you'll meet me part way, well, then I guess I'll think about saving you. No, that's the world's mentality. That's human mentality. That is human, fallen, sinful nature. That's not what the Bible, that's not what the Scripture teaches us. God is not waiting for us to come to meet him. He's not waiting halfway. He is not depending upon us for anything. What God is doing is revealing something to us. Have you ever seen someone say, well, I guess, I guess God's just waiting for them to get to their lowest point. And finally, if they just hit rock bottom then maybe they'll look up. I've said that I don't know how many times. 
Listen, you were born at rock bottom. You just don't know it. I was born at rock bottom. I just don't know it. That little baby Gideon right there, when he was born, came out of his mother's womb as cute, as precious, as, as much as I love him. Listen, he was born at rock bottom. He was born lost and undone in need of a savior, just like every other human being who's born on this planet. If we think we haven't hit rock bottom yet, it's just our illusion. It's just our vain imagination. The reality is, it doesn't matter how moral, how well-behaved, how well-ordered, how successful your life is. Apart from Christ, you are at rock bottom. You are so low, so far down there, you, you can't get any lower. It doesn't matter what the world says about your life. It doesn't matter about the, what the world says about your reputation or your behavior. Oh, he is such a good person. Do you know how much money he gives to help the, the needy? Do you know how much time he gives of himself? He is such a good person. He doesn't believe in God, but he's a really good person. Or maybe, do you know he's in church She's in church every time the doors are open. They're such a good person. I got news for you. Church doesn't save you. Your good works don't save you. They don't make you a good person. There's no such thing as a good person. Technically speaking, according to the scripture, Jesus said there's only one good. That is God. We are in need, desperate need. We have already come to our lowest point. The day we broke out of our mother's womb and came into this world, we, we hit the ground at rock bottom. We hit the ground in need of a Savior. God in His grace helps us to know our true condition because we're not born understanding this. So we spend our lives striving, working for goodness. Do you know people who live to be affirmed by others? We all do to a certain extent. We all want affirmation. And there's nothing wrong with affirmation. But in our fallen state, in our sinful state, we mistakenly think that if we can get enough affirmation and accolades from other people, if I can fill my wall with awards and pieces of paper, if I can just get that person to, to, to think I'm great, I will have arrived. No. We're driven by performance because that's what the sin nature does. That's what happened when Adam and Eve ate of the tree. They became driven by performance because everything they did in life, they did judging it based on their knowledge of good and evil. Well, if that person will like me, that will be really good. Well, if that person will affirm me, then that... Mm -mm. If that group will accept me, then no. So what does God do in His grace in light of our fallen condition? God in His grace helps us to know our true condition so that we may know who we are without Him. Do you, do you realize how easy it is for us to know who we are when we don't have certain acceptance by certain groups and certain people. I mean, when I was in sales, when I was in sales, you know, you, you judged everything by what level of commission you have reached. And there were these people at these different levels. And in that world, you were judged by what level you had attained to.
And, and in so many ways, that's, that's what we do in our humanness. This is, why, this is why very often in our culture today, mothers are demeaned. Because what have you achieved? All you've done is produce a bunch of snotty-nosed kids. What barriers have you broken? What goals have you achieved? How much income, what level of education, what level of success have you achieved? You're just wasting your life at home with a bunch of kids. Now, that sounds pretty facetious, but there are people who really think that way. And you know why people think that way? Because there are a lot of women who think that if they don't achieve certain things, they are not successful. They have not attained. Because the world we live in, who's driven by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, because the pride of life says, if you don't do this and you don't do that, and you don't achieve this and you don't achieve that, then you haven't achieved anything. And you are a eh, failure. I mean, yeah, come on. There was a time when that's all women could do was stay home and have babies, right? But now we're living in the 21st century. You can get an education. You, can, you don't even have to get married. You don't even have to think about having kids. You can be your own woman. You can be your own person. You can chase success. You can achieve what you want to achieve. And it cuts across both genders. It doesn't matter. This isn't a girl or a boy, a male or a female, a mother or a father, a single or a married. This is what the world is driven by, the pride of life. And it will drive us to the point that it will cost us everything. Because the world convinces us that happiness has to be defined in a certain way. It has to feel a certain way. It has to look a certain way. And if I don't have the feeling and I don't have the look, then I'm not happy. So I'll just chuck what I've got and I'll go after that which does make me feel and make me look the way the world says I should feel and the way the world says I should look. We are fallen. And we are so far fallen that we have no hope in ourselves. We have no way to pick ourselves up. We have no way to meet God. I mean, we, 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 can't, we can't even move toward Him. We can't even think to move toward Him. We are so fallen into darkness and depraved. And here's what God's grace does. God grace, God's grace helps us come to realize that. He wants us to know the depravity of our hearts so that we will know the depth of his love. God wants us to know that we have no hope until he reaches into our sin and into our darkness and translates us into the kingdom of the son of his love. That's the way Paul describes it in his letter in Colossians, that we've been translated, we've been conveyed, delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of the son of his love. God didn't love you because you weren't fallen. God didn't love you because you tried really hard. God didn't love you because you found a way to be successful. God loved you in spite of your inability for all of that. He loved you because He is good and He is graceful. It is grace that saves us and keeps us. It is grace that allows us to fall. Did you hear me, church? It is grace that allows you to fall. It is grace that allows you to fail. It is grace that redeems us from the fall. It is grace that redeems us from our failure. It is grace that never stops working in us. It is grace that is ever bringing us to a greater knowledge of His love. 
until you know how much you need him, you will never know how much he loves you. We are born fallen, not by our choice, but by the choice of our father, Adam. There is nothing we can do to reverse the curse of Adam. Only a new Adam, bringing a new creation, can do that. And so that is exactly what Christ did when he came. In the first Adam, we are helplessly and hopelessly lost in a state of sin and death. That state of sin and death may look, it may look moral, it may look great, or it may look immoral and it may look out of control. Just watch the news or listen to the news or read the news. It does not take very long before you'll stumble across something and you'll say, how could a person possibly be so depraved, so distorted? I'll tell you how, but by the grace of God, because that's how we're born, depraved and distorted. Or, like most people, we're somewhere in between that perfect picture of morality and self-control and that picture of someone totally out of control and immoral. We're, most people are somewhere in between striving for goodness. And when we find that goodness heaped on us by other well-meaning people, it makes us feel so good. Oh. Because we so want to be good. But we don't want to be good in a godly sense, in a spiritual sense. Do you see what I'm saying? We want to be good because we're driven by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We want to be good. We want to be deemed good because it does something to our pride. It does something. It puffs us up. And what does that do? It gives us the illusion that we're okay. Jason Henderson writes it this way in his book, Not I, But Christ. He said, men love religion because it allows them to hide in the darkness and pretend that they are light. See, there's not a lack of spirituality in the earth. There's a lot of spiritual people. They're just not spiritual as the Bible defines them. A lot of very religious people, people driven by good works and belief in a supernatural deity, maybe going through the steps of some religion. It could be very well known. It could be very obscure. And why does that make us feel good? Why do, why do the vast majority of people on earth embrace some form of spirituality, some belief in a higher power? Because it makes us feel good about ourselves. That's why. Christianity is the only religion on the face of the earth in which what it teaches us is that we are absolutely incapable. We can't even reach toward God. We're not given the power to climb the ladder to meet God. We're dead in our sin. God must come to us. You look at any other world religion, and those religions give us steps and ways to reach God to climb the ladder. And if we work hard enough, if we're good enough, we just may get there. I mean, maybe you won't have to come back as a lower life form. Maybe you'll get to be reincarnated as a higher life form. If you're really good in this life, you might get to be rich in the next life. No, that's all myth. That's all foolishness. That is just our flesh, the vanity of our flesh. That's just the pride of life, making us feel good, pretending to be light, when in reality, the Bible says we are darkness. So it's the heart of man, the very core and the nature of our being that is dark and sinful. No good behavior, no moralistic philosophy can overcome our wicked heart. Only God can give us a new heart. It's not a modification that we need. It is a miracle 
that we need. We don't need more information, better knowledge, better steps, a better formula to modify our heart. No, we need a heart transplant. We don't need modification. We need a miracle. And only God can take a cold, stony, hard heart of stone and give us a warm heart of flesh. That's what he says through the prophet Ezekiel. God says, I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put a new spirit in you. Church, that's not a modification. That's a miracle. We were born fallen at our lowest point, And that is where we are until God does a miracle. That's where each and every one of us were. If you are in Christ today, you once were darkness, but now you are light. You were fallen, but now you are risen. We are fallen in our birth, but there is a new birth. There is grace for the fallen. There's grace for our failures. So when God allowed Adam and Eve to fall in the garden, he already knew that there was only one man who had ever or could ever walk a perfect, righteous, and holy life. You understand this. God did not create Adam and Eve, and now God is waiting to find that man who is going to be righteous for him, who is going to walk in holiness for him. And every time a man was born, and every time a man fell, God said, man, I just really thought he would be the one. No. God had no illusion as to who man is because God created man. And God had no illusion as to who that man would be who would come one day and walk out a perfectly righteous in holy life. He knew exactly who that man would be. His name is Jesus Christ. In fact, it was Jesus who created all at creation. It was Jesus, the Word, who spoke everything into existence. John, in his Gospel, tells us that there is nothing that was created that was created apart from Him. So God knew there, there would never be a man until the one man came. And the time of his coming was yet in the future, but God foretold of his coming and of his victory over sin and the curse in Genesis 3.15. Let's look at that, Genesis 3.15. That man is Christ, and that seed foretold by God is Christ. Genesis 3.15, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her, her seed. So he's talking to the serpent, and he said, I'll put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. If you have any other translation than a King James, hopefully your Bible says seed there. That word should be seed with a capital S. And that word seed is used throughout Genesis. Oftentimes it's translated descendants. But that seed doesn't speak of a bunch of people. That seed doesn't speak of an ethnic group. That seed speaks of one man, one person, the man, Christ Jesus, who would come and bruise the head of the serpent. We sang the song today. You you think it's a Christmas carol. What are we doing singing Christmas songs in May? No, it's a worship song. Did you notice in that song it says, bruise the seed of the serpent, Christ coming to dwell in us and in us bruise the head of the serpent. This is God foretelling of his son that would come one day. Galatians 4, 4 and 5. Paul writes, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. There is grace For our failures. Christ came to redeem those who were born under the law. Christ the promised seed would come in the fullness of time. To redeem those born under the law. Making them his children. And ushering in 
a new creation. We do not usually have to be reminded of our failures. How many of you? We don't have to be reminded of our failures. We're usually painfully aware of them. We usually do a pretty good job through shame and self-condemnation. In fact, much of our time is taken up with books and talks that try to help us overcome our failures. I've talked a lot about fallenness and failure today, and that is really PC in the church world these days. Because no one wants to come to church and hear about fallenness and failure. We want to hear about how we're going to overcome our failures. How we can have our best life yet. How we can be the most successful, the most happy. And so we're great. Human beings are so good at writing formulas for success. If you'll just follow this formula, we look at someone and say, look, they're successful. Well, let's go interview them and find out how they became successful. And listen, there are truths and there are principles that are timeless in terms of success if we want to talk about it in that way. I mean, hard work, diligence, those, those things, the Bible promotes those things. We should be diligent people. We should be hardworking, but we need to understand why the Bible tells us to be that and what it's not telling us. It's not telling us that we need to work really hard to get God's favor. That's impossible. We can't do that. Because we don't get his favor by working hard for him. And so it's not that these things aren't true or there are not truths there. But when the Bible talks about success or failure or in the way that we're talking about it, when we talk about there's grace for the fallen or there is grace for our failures, I'm not just talking about how to manage your finances better or how to manage your time better or how to get that promotion, or how to attain that master's degree, or that PhD that you've always wanted. That's not the kind of success that the Bible is most concerned about. And so we don't, we need to define our terms a little bit better when we talk about these things. So the problem is with this desire that we have to get past our failures, to forget our failures, to, to finally get it right, to move on to victory. That's what our humanness wants. That's what the pride of life wants. How many people do not want to be successful? If you don't want to be successful, raise your hand. Well, we all want to be successful, right? But what's most important is how does God view us? How does God look at us? Does God look at you and affirm you and think more highly of you because you're more successful in worldly terms than other people? Does God love the rich more than he loves the poor? Does God, lo- God love the person that lives in the 5,000-square-foot house more than he does the person that lives in the 900-square-foot house? Does God love and affirm the person that drives the newer, more expensive car more than he does the older, beat-up car? No. And we all understand that, I hope. But also understand that sometimes we fall into this trap that the world has laid for us through the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Sometimes we fall into this trap. And, and before we know it, we begin to define our own success or our own failures based on those things. And we forget the grace of God, and we forget the truth of God, and we forget that God's love and God's plan for us is so much greater than those temporal things. So when we talk about failure or success, when we define them, we can't define them in temporal terms. We need to define them the way the Scripture would define them, the way that God would want us to understand how He looks at us, how he sees us in our fallenness and how he sees us in Christ. In our fallenness, God could care less how worldly successful we are. That just means absolutely nothing to him. In our redemption, listen, 
I will say this, I think God could care less how worldly successful we are. If you become worldly successful as a saved person, it's because you better give glory to God because God is the one that is giving you the grace to do that. The, the scripture says it's God who gives men the power to create wealth. So when we become redeemed people, we need to understand that we can't take credit for anything when it all comes down to it. We better give glory to God because that's where the glory belongs. But when we begin to define failure or success in these temporal terms, or we go after success in these temporal ways, it indicates that we, and I think we're guilty of this very often, we, we think that we know better than God. I mean, how many of you have ever thought, how many of you have ever been fearful? It's like, oh man, I think this is what God wants, but I'm really afraid because that's really not what I want. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever been afraid because you think, I think what I want is really not what God wants? And that scares me because I want what I want really bad. And if God doesn't want what I want, that's kind of scary to me. Why? Because I don't want to give up what I want. I don't want to give up my way. I want to somehow convince God that my way is better than his way. I want to somehow convince God that my idea is better than his idea. God, I think, I think, uh, I think maybe there was a mistake made when I did this. Now, let me convince you that I need to undo this because I've got a better idea. God's like, no. You don't have a better idea. You just think you have a better idea. So we chronically think that we have a better idea or we know better than God and we prove this by continuing to live life on our own terms instead of his. We seek success that is so much less than what God has that, and we continually fail not only because we are prone to failure, but because God is graceful. Do you, do you understand that sometimes God allowing you to fail is his grace? Because if God allowed us to succeed in everything we wanted to do, where, where would we be, perhaps? I mean, I think about if I was able to succeed in everything I ever wanted to do, I guarantee I wouldn't be here right now. I, wouldn't, I don't know where I'd be, but I can promise you I wouldn't be here if it was left up to me. And, and I can think back in times when I was absolutely convinced that I, I was right. I had the right idea. My way was the right way. And it was the grace of God that allowed me to come to the end of that, to fail. And I realize now, looking back, how many times God had to allow me to fail before I finally realized, maybe, God, are you trying to tell me something? He's like, duh, finally. Yes, I'm trying to tell you something. Don't look at your failures as a bad thing. Sometimes they are. Sometimes our failures are a product of our sinfulness. But even when our failures are a product of our sinfulness, the grace of God is, is not absent. God's grace works in our failure even when our failures are a product of our sinfulness. Because after all, God's grace worked and saved us while we were in our sinfulness, did he not? There's grace for the fallen. When you were a sinner, God saved you. So the mistakes, the failures that are products of your sinfulness, don't think that God's grace is not there. He's, his grace does not only work in the victories you are able to achieve, or the, the victories you think you're able to achieve. Do you realize how many victories you may be thought you achieved, but in reality they were, in God's eyes, not victories at all? You were able to exert your will and achieve your will that may or may not have been a victory for you. 
But God's grace was never absent in any of those scenarios. God's grace works in the midst of our failure. We're born under the law so that our need for him in the face of our repeated failures will become so obvious that our only boast will be in the cross. This is what Paul writes in Galatians 6.14. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. When Paul said, the world is crucified to me, Paul understood exactly what that meant. That the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life had been crucified to me. I have no boast in anything except the cross of Christ. This is where God wants to bring us, church. He wants to bring each and every one of us to this place where we understand failure, success, our highs, our lows. It does not matter. We have no boast except in the cross of Christ. But by the grace of God, we do not know where we would be or if we would be. So God sent grace for our failures when he sent his only begotten son who cannot fail. Why is God's way better than our way? Because God does not fail. And God in his grace and in his love for us will work in us and through us in the most annoying and painful ways until he brings us to that realization, until we have that epiphany that God does not fail. Why do I fear his will? Why do I fear his way? Why do I fear his word? He cannot fail. I must come to that place of knowing that. We are failed and we are allowed to fail in order to reveal our true need for him who is our only true success. Do you realize that if you died penniless, but with Christ? That's exactly what Jesus meant when he said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but loses his own soul? In that sense, that Christ is our truest truest success, in that sense, failure itself becomes a grace. Because our failures reveal our need for him. There is grace for our failures. And there is grace for our future. In one sense we can say this, that the Bible is a record of man's fallen and failed past throughout history. But the good news is that the Bible is not only about our fallen and failed past, it is about our future. It records the fallen and the failed past of man in order to more accurately reveal our present life and glorious future in Christ. So in Genesis 1, verse 4, it says that God separated light from darkness. So we see even in creation, God graphically pictures our future in the midst of the void and the darkness. There was void there was darkness there was the spirit hovering and God said let there be light and God separated the light from the darkness and when God divided light from darkness there in the natural creation he gave us a picture this division of light and darkness is pointing us to the division of spiritual light and spiritual darkness that Paul writes about in 2 Corinthians and in Ephesians 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Or in Ephesians 5, 8, when Paul writes, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. God divided the light 
from the darkness before Adam and Eve were even created. We see that in the very beginning of the creation, before the fall of Adam and Eve, God gives us the gospel. God spoke light into the darkness, and God divided the light from the darkness. God speaks light into the darkness of our hearts. He divides light from darkness. We once were darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. He shines light into our dark hearts that we may see the glory of God, that we may have the knowledge Knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In spite of your fallen nature, in spite of our chronic failures, God has ordained grace for us then, now, and in the future. The fall of Adam and Eve was not caused by God, but it was allowed and ordained by God in His grace. Because We define success and failure and good and evil from our own evil hearts and minds. We fail to see the goodness of God and the grace of God in all things. In the bitter and the sweet and the light and the dark. In the times of great blessing and abundance. In the times of great lack and dryness. God's grace is working in all things. He is the Lord and sovereign over all. Over all of your fall, over all of your failures, and over all of your future. There is indeed grace for your future. The writer of Hebrews says of Jesus, he is the author and finisher of our faith. God is an author and an artist. He's a writer, a painter, a sculptor. He is a creator, and like any good author or artist, he uses light and dark to craft his story, to deepen the beauty and the life of his art and of his characters. We are his handiwork, his art, if you will, but more than art, he makes us his children and partakers of his nature in Christ. We are his people. The Bible calls us his own special treasure, endeared and beloved to him in Christ for all. All eternity. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the cosmos. He chose us even when we were vessels that appeared to be marred and broken beyond any hope. He crafted us. He created us in Christ. The Bible declares that we are His workmanship. He is good. We are fallen. He is graceful. We are needful. He is good. We are redeemed. He is graceful. We are failures. He remains graceful. Though we are fallen, there is grace. Though we are failures, there is grace. Though we have a past, there is grace for our future. Praise God for His all-sufficient, never-failing grace. Let's stand. I want to remind you what the Bible records when Adam and Eve fell and they sinned against God. The Bible says they hid from God. Our tendency is no different today. In our fallenness, in our failures, as we live in our past, forgetting we have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, we hide ourselves, we run from God. When in reality, we should run to Him. We should cry out to Him from the depths of our broken hearts. For He is graceful. Father in heaven, we pray today that You would continue to do Your work by Your grace. Lord, we don't run from our fallenness. We don't run from our failures. We don't run from our past. God, help us to run to you, knowing that we were once darkness, but by grace, through faith, we are light in the Lord. Lord, we chronically fail. We fail you every day, but yet every day, moment by moment, your grace is there for us. Help us, God, not to run from you, but to run to you. 
into your arms of grace. Help us, God, to be a people that do not forget our past and where we have come from, the depths of our darkness. Indeed, God, we pray that you would reveal to us in greater measure how deep our darkness was, how utter our depravity was. And apart from you, God, that we are hopeless and helpless, we are people truly without any hope apart from you. But God, when you redeem us by grace, when you make us new creations, when you take us from darkness and translate us into the light, and you make us children of light, God, help us not to run from our past, but to learn from our past. Help us, God, that as you teach us who we are apart from you, through our failures, through our fallenness, that, God, you would, at the same time, open our eyes and help us to see the depth of your love for us, the depth of the grace that saved us, that, God, we were not a people looking for you, reaching out for you, meeting you halfway. God, we were a people who had no desire to seek you, who were called your enemies. But yet in your grace, God, you saved us. We thank you for grace. Thank you for grace, God. Thank you for grace. And I pray, God, for those that are struggling, that, Lord, they would embrace their struggle and they would ask you to reveal to them your grace in the midst of their struggle. God, we would all come to a place of just surrender before you, not striving in our own way to do our own will, but resting in you, in your will, in your perfect plan for us, and knowing that, God, you will by grace, give us a good future and a good hope in Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for these promises that you give us throughout your word. Help us, God, be a people that would see them and know them and live them to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.